Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to continue our discussion on the OB world, the patients that we're going to deal with in this population. Last time we talked about the physiological changes that we're going to see throughout pregnancy, and if we're doing a case during pregnancy or even at term, what are the changes that we're going to see in these patients and how it's going to affect our care. Today we want to move into the actual idea of a patient in labor, whether that's going to be us coming into place an epidural during a vaginal delivery or if the patient's going into a cesarean section and we need to either do a emergent cesarean section scheduled and how that's going to affect our plan of action, whether we're going to do a spinal, a general, use an epidural, etc. To start with though, we want to go through some of the common medications that we're going to see during this time period. Medications that are going to cause the uterus to contract, the uterus to relax, analgesics that we're going to give. So first we're going to spend some time going through those medications, and then we're going to apply them to the different types of procedures that we're going to do like a C-section. First thing that we'll talk about is tocolytic agents. And so these are going to be medications that are going to try to stop or limit the contractions. So generally, you would think of these with premature delivery where you were trying to slow down the progression of labor or the progression of the contractions. The way these work is basically we're going to be trying to manipulate calcium with many of these. And specifically, we're going to talk about the myosin light chain kinase and how that affects the muscle contraction. If you remember all the way back from anatomy, we're talking here about smooth muscle contraction. So you still have your cross bridge cycling, your actin and myosin it's a little bit different here. It doesn't have the troponin involved like it would with your skeletal muscle, but you should know that calcium is still going to be a very important player when we talk about the muscle contraction here. So to block that, first one would be the beta-2 agonist. Some examples of these would be ritadrin or terbutaline. Beta-2 agonist will activate the adenylocyclase to make more cyclic AMP. When you have more of the cyclic AMP, this will decrease the intracellular calcium, which will limit contraction. You'll have some tachyphylaxis, so you'll have desensitization with each time that you give these. So you may need to increase your dose or look at different medications to use there. Some of the side effects that you'll see with that is increased heart rate, hypokalemia, hyperglycemia, if you remember that from the other beta-2 agonists that we give, hypotension, and then you could also see some pulmonary edema. Another medication that you would commonly see here is magnesium. The reason we use magnesium is because it blocks the membrane and intracellular calcium channels from increasing that calcium level in the cell. So as Tanner was saying, there, there are two ways here in these smooth muscles that we're getting calcium intracellular, and that's one through the membrane, but two, if you remember the sarcoplasmic reticulum inside that cell houses lots of calcium. And if the cell is stimulated, it can cause a release of that calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So just keep that in mind. There's two ways here. One is coming out of the sarcoplasmic reticulum to the rest of the cell, and two, calcium coming in from the outside of the cell itself. So the magnesium is going to block these membrane on the outside of the cell from allowing calcium to go in. But it's not as significant in terms of the other tocolytic agents that Tanner was talking about with like the beta-2 agonist. 
we use it more in the OB world to decrease seizure risk in eclamptic patients. And that's because it hyperpolarizes the membrane of excitatory cells. But the biggest thing here that we want to worry about is some toxicity. There's different levels that you're going to have to memorize. And we're going to use milligrams per deciliter. There's different units that you can use to measure this. So keep in mind that depending on the units you're using, these values will change. But from what we're seeing, the most common is milligrams per deciliter. Some of the side effects you're going to see is going to be nausea and vomiting, hypotension, some pulmonary edema that develops, and they're all going to kind of develop at different levels of plasma concentration of this magnesium. So our normal level here is going to be 1.5 to 2.5 milligrams per deciliter. As we give this medication, 4 to 8 milligrams per deciliter is kind of that therapeutic range we're looking for. But again, you're going to start to see these side effects such as weakness, lethargy, nausea and vomiting, flushing. As we keep getting higher, when we get up to 10 to 12 milligrams per deciliter, that's when you're going to start to see loss of deep tendon reflexes. Hypotension can develop. And as we get up closer to 15, you're going to have the heart being affected. So you're going to have some arrhythmias such as AV blocks, sinoatrial blocks. And as we get closer to the 20 range, that's when you're going to start to have respiratory arrest. And closer to 25 milligrams per deciliter is when you're going to have a systole. So the biggest thing here is you got to watch out for the side effects depending on what level you're at. So again, we're looking for that four to eight range more for the therapeutic. And as we get higher, you're going to start to have more and more side effects that can occur. On the other side, just while we're talking about it, hypomagnesium, if you're less than 1.2 milligrams per deciliter, that's going to cause seizures, tetany, dysrhythmias as well. So that's why we give magnesium in these eclamptic patients to decrease the risk of having seizures because we don't want hypomagnesium. One last point to note with magnesium is we don't really use this in myasthenia gravis patients because it'll decrease muscle strength. And if you remember from our talk when we discussed the neuromuscular junction and the different disease processes there, myasthenia gravis is already going to have muscle weakness simply due to the fact that a lot of the nicotinic receptors are being blocked by the antibodies. And if we are going to decrease it even more by hyperpolarizing the membranes here with magnesium, that's going to make these patients even significantly weaker. So don't use magnesium in a myasthenia gravis patient. Next, let's talk about cyclooxygenase inhibitors. Cyclooxygenase is used to make prostaglandins. So if you remember, we talked about this specifically with the pain pathway and trying to limit the initial stimulation in the prostaglandins that would begin these pathways. Here, what we're going to use them for is the prostaglandins usually will increase your calcium levels. And like we've already talked about, the calcium is really going to be instrumental in causing these contractions. So if we can kind of attack this from a different angle and decrease the calcium levels by decreasing the prostaglandins, that's where the COX inhibitors will be really effective. Side effects here, you can have a narrowing or closure of the ductus arteriosus. If you remember this from anatomy, this is where the fetal heart is different than the mature heart where it has this opening that is a connection from the pulmonary artery and the descending aorta. And this allows them to oxygenate without using their lungs until the ductus arteriosus with pressure changes will close once the baby is born. But giving these COX inhibitors can cause narrowing or closure, which could compromise the oxygenation status of the baby. So because of that, we don't give it after 32 weeks gestation. You also want to monitor with fetal ECG if you're giving before 32 weeks and longer for 48 hours, again, because it can have such effects here on the baby. Speaking specifically about the renal system, here you can have effects that eventually lead to decreases in the amniotic fluid. If you remember back on our renal discussion, 
prostaglandins will increase the afferent blood flow to the kidneys. Well, for giving COX inhibitors, that's going to cause the opposite effect. And so you'd have decreased renal blood flow from the afferent arterial. This can cause a decreased urine output. That leads to decreased amniotic fluid. Urine output is vital for creating the amniotic fluid. And so again, if you're giving this to a mother previously to the 32 weeks, which is, again, the cutoff for giving these COX inhibitors, you should also be aware that this may have some implications for the amniotic fluid. Great. Yeah. So it's important to note there that it's not just affecting the mom, it's also affecting the fetus. So if the fetus isn't going to have as much urine output, the amniotic fluid level is going to be low. So when we're giving these medications, we also need to be thinking about how it's going to affect the mom and the fetus as well. So moving on to calcium channel blockers, Obviously, this is going to block calcium entry from the membrane and the sarcoplasmic reticulum into the cell, as the name gives away. And basically, it'll inhibit, as Tanner was talking about earlier, the myosin light chain activity here in these smooth muscle cells, and the cell's not going to be able to contract as much. Side effects from these medications are going to be dizziness and hypotension. If we infuse it with MAG, then it can really cause some bradycardia, skeletal muscle weakness. It can also increase your hepatic enzyme levels as well. And the last one we want to talk about is nitric oxide. If you remember, nitric oxide is a vasodilator that increases cyclic GMP. Cyclic GMP turns off these myosin light chain kinases, and this is going to relax that uterus then. So as Tanner talked about earlier, cyclic AMP decreases that intracellular calcium level and limits the contraction. Now, in this case, cyclic GMP is going to turn off those myosin light chain kinases, which then relaxes the uterus. Side effect of this, if we're going to be vasodilating the patient, obviously we're going to have some hypotension here that will develop more so than some of the other medications that we're going to give. So keep that in mind. As a whole here, we would give these medications in patients that are maybe in preterm labor where we want to limit the contraction of the uterus and try to keep the baby in as long as possible. The next one we want to talk about is medications that are now going to cause the uterus to contract. So if we have a patient that has uterine atony, which is failure of the uterus to contract, especially after delivery of the fetus, they can cause some postpartum hemorrhage. And so we want to give these medications in times where we need that uterus to contract to potentially limit the bleeding that can occur after delivery. Right. So the first one we want to talk about here is oxytocin, or you'll often hear Pitocin. That's the synthetic oxytocin. Speaking of oxytocin, where is oxytocin stored? Posterior pituitary. Along with... Vasopressin. Awesome. Those are the only two in the posterior pituitary. For more info on so, that, go listen to our endocrine talk. <laughs> yeah, go listen shout to out, Shout out for the, it was a boring two episodes. I apologize if you're an endocrine lover, but check that out if you want to know, learn more about that. Shame, shameless plugging for our own podcast. What can we say? Our marketing budget is low, as in zero. And anyways, the... Oxytocin here is going to stimulate receptors in the myometrium of the uterus, and this will cause contraction. Usually, you'll see this as an IV infusion immediately after delivery or after the placental delivery. Again, because of what Cole just mentioned, you're really worried about possibly hemorrhage here if the uterus will not contract. You can inject this directly into the uterus. Again, that's depending on the OB physician. If you need to give a large bolus of this, it can cause hypotension. That massive hypotension can cause the reflex tachycardia. You can see pulmonary edema, nausea, vomiting, and you can also see myocardial ischemia from the coronary vasoconstriction. You can be at risk for water intoxication. 
because you can have retention very similar to the actions of vasopressin. Again, if you remember, the posterior pituitary is going to house oxytocin and the vasopressin. The next one we want to talk about is methogen. Methogen is going to be used to increase the tone and the rate and the amplitude of this uterus contraction. It does this by stimulating alpha adrenergic receptors. So if we're stimulating alpha adrenergic receptors systemically as well as in the uterus, this can cause a lot of hypertension throughout the rest of the body and even some cerebral hemorrhage as well. So we try not to give this IV if we can. Typically, you only give this in emergent cases IV that you have to get it in right away. But very often, though, you'll see this used as an IM injection. We give about 0.2 milligrams of methogen. And this really helps speed up the third stage of labor. We're going to get into stages here in a little bit. But the third stage is after the delivery of the fetus until the delivery of the placenta. So giving this medication is going to help speed up that process and limit the amount of blood loss that can occur during that time period. And lastly, we want to talk about prostaglandins. If you remember from what Tanner just talked about with COX inhibitors that are going to decrease prostaglandins, we want to give prostaglandins here to increase the calcium entry and contraction in the uterus. A couple examples here, you can give carboprost or hemabate. Hemabate is used for postpartum hemorrhage simply due to the fact when the uterus is not contracting as much and other methods haven't worked. So this isn't our first line drug that we're going to give. So if we've already given Pitocin, Methogen, we can now try to give Hemabate. And we give this IM about 250 micrograms. And we don't give this in asthma patients. The reasoning here is that it can cause bronchoconstriction. So if you already have a patient that is going to be at risk, we don't want to give this medication to stimulate the bronchospasm to occur. Side effects of prostaglandins are going to be hypertension or hypotension. You can kind of have both sides of it. Then the nausea and vomiting and diarrhea are also seen as well. Next, let's talk about some of the complications that we could see. Specifically here, you could see some maternal hypotension. And how are we going to fix this? This can happen for a number of different reasons. You could see this when you do your natural anesthesia. There's a lot of fluid shifts that are happening that you could see some hypotension. So how are we going to treat it? The main discussion here is between whether you're going to do phenylephrine or ephedrine, and this probably changes based on where you practice. Some of the discussion behind it is that NEO has a higher fetal pH and less intraoperative nausea vomiting. Nausea vomiting is going to be early indicator for hypotension in the mom. So some will say that NEO is a better choice there just because of those reasons. Ephedrine in the past has been the gold standard for spinal-induced hypotension. The complication here is that you don't want an increased heart rate and the mother could already have an increased heart rate, whereas NEO will have less effect there on the heart rate, just more on the hypotension picture. So again, this is kind of changes depending on where you practice, but from the things that we're reading, it seems like phenylephrine would be the better option here. So the next thing we want to talk about is hemorrhage. We're going to get into this more a little bit later in this talk when we discuss C-section and what can occur after the delivery of the fetus. But if you do have a hemorrhage patient, two things we're going to give on top of the medications we've already talked about, such as Pitocin and Methogen, you can give transexemic acid. And what this does is it binds to plasminogen and blocks the activation of plasmin, aka what this does is it prevents the degradation of a developing clot. So the mom is going to be more likely to keep those clots that she's forming and prevent the hemorrhage from continuing to have a lot of blood loss. The other thing you can give here is nitroglycerin. This is given for patients that have a retained placenta and placental fragments. So let's say the fetus has been delivered, placenta has been delivered, and it has fragments left over. 
this basically won't let that uterus fully contract or even you can start to see a uterine inversion picture that we would give this nitroglycerin for as well. But basically, we need that uterus to relax, let the surgeon go in, get out the rest of the placental fragments, and then we can start the contraction of that uterus back to normal shape and then decrease that hemorrhage that can occur. So basically what you'll see here is we'll give this nitro. It's great because you can give a push of it and it's literally only going to last a couple minutes, maybe even a couple seconds. And it's just enough time for that surgeon to go remove those fragments and then it contracts again. And that's why it's nice because we're not giving a med that's going to relax that uterus for an hour and we have to worry about hemorrhage for an hour after we give the medication. So that's the good thing about nitroglycerin. Even though it's not preventing hemorrhage, we usually give this in situations when we have that retained placenta or we need that uterus to quickly relax in order to fix the problem and then we can contract it again with those other meds. So now moving on to aspiration prophylaxis. If you recall from our last talk, these patients are more at risk for Mendelssohn syndrome simply because they have a decreased gastric pH level, increased gastric volume, during labor, they may have a decreased gastric emptying. So basically, these patients are very much at risk for aspirating. As a result, we want to give some different kinds of medications here, depending on whether we're going to do a labor, epidural, whether we're going to go in for a C-section. Our plan's going to slightly change. If we're going to be doing more of an emergency section or an urgency section, it's going to be happening very quickly. A very good option is to use bicitra, uh, sodium citrate here that increases your gastric pH for about an hour, and it's like an immediate effect. And that's the nice thing is we don't have to wait 30 minutes, 45 minutes like some of the other medications to take effect. We can give this bicitra, and boom, immediately we're going to have this effect. We can go right into the C-section. Other meds that you might give is ranitidine, which basically decreases the gastric acid secretion. You can give Reglan, which increases gastric motility. And that will then decrease your gastric volume and, and will hopefully prevent the amount of volume that can be aspirated. And you can also give antiacids plus an H2 antagonist. This is kind of the best mix here to prevent the low gastric pH levels. But again, the big thing is Bicitra has that immediate effect. So it's very good to give right before a procedure. You don't have to give it 45 minutes before you start. The next complication that we want to talk about is pain. Obviously, this is a major consideration when you're talking about having a baby. I wouldn't know, but bless all of you who do know. First thing we can do here is give opioids. There's some disadvantages and some advantages with opioids, as always. The disadvantage is that they can transfer to the baby fairly easily, and so you can have some effects there with the baby, specifically when you talk about respiratory depression. Fentanyl is going to be a short acting with less respiratory depression drug. And so that fentanyl is a, a nice choice. Remy fentanyl is very short acting, but it also depresses the respiratory system to a greater extent. And so Remy fentanyl is not quite as desirable as fentanyl would be. Morphine, we don't really use this similarly to Remy fentanyl because of the respiratory depression. And also it can cause some maternal sedation. And if we're not trying to go to sleep, then we need you awake, we need you pushing. And so morphine's not going to be a good choice there. Also, morphine can really affect the baby's respiratory rate. And so that's another reason that morphine is not usually chosen. Butorphanol and nabufin are interesting because they have these respiratory depressant sealing. The catch here is that it's a partial agonist versus antagonist med, and you don't want to give these if the patient is opioid dependent. But again, it's nice because it won't have as much respiratory depressant 
effects or it at least has a ceiling to how much effect that would cause if you need to give more of these medications to manage the pain. We can also give ketamine. Ketamine preserves airway reflexes, which is nice. It also has sedative effects. And so there is some concern here because when it crosses the placenta, it will lower the APGAR score for the baby and cause kind of a sleepy baby picture when that baby is born. You also want to avoid this in eclamptic patients or those with hypertension. These eclamptic patients will have a hypertensive picture. You know, ketamine will increase blood pressure, increase ICP, those types of things. And so ketamine would not be a good choice here for your patients with increased blood pressure. Next, you can use a nitric oxide mixture. I've read about the idea that you have the mom basically breathe in a 50-50 mixture between oxygen and nitrous that you breathe in about 30 seconds prior to contraction, gets in the system just in time for the contraction to occur, and then they don't breathe it in the rest of the time and then put it back in for the next contraction. Obviously, if we're doing this, you're going to be having gas leaking out through the mask when the mom is not having it on her face. So we need a scavenging system built into the room. And then if you recall, nitrous oxide can cause some nauseousness as well. So we want to be careful of that. Again, I haven't really seen this much, but it is an interesting idea to use a 50-50 mixture. But again, if you're going to do that, you need a scavenging system. Moving now into the actual stages of labor. So we're going to apply these medications now to a laboring mom. The first section of labor, so we're, we're split into three stages here. The first stage is going to be the start of regular contractions up until complete dilation of the cervix. And this is split into two smaller phases under this first stage. So you have your latent phase, which is regular contractions up until about two or three centimeters dilated. And then we switch into an active phase, which is from that two to three centimeters up to full dilation. What's important to note here is depending on what stage of labor you're in, will affect the nerve fibers that are sending pain transmission up to the brain. In this first stage, you're going to have more of a visceral pain due to dilation of the cervix and contractions that are causing pain in the lower uterine segment. This is more the T10 to L1 C-type fibers or the hypogastric nerves that are going to be sending this pain stimulation. Moms often complain of pain in their lower back during this time as well as their bottom and thighs as that pain progresses as they get closer to the end of this first stage. When we talk about doing a labor epidural, if you're coming in and the patient's in the first stage of labor, we're going to want to make sure that we're blocking this T10 to L1 or C-type fibers from the hypogastric nerves. You can do a paravertebral lumbar sympathetic block or a paracervical block. Keep in mind here, if we do a paracervical block, local anesthetic is going to be injected lateral to the cervix, and the problem and the risk that can be done with these nerve blocks is that we can risk injecting the medication into the fetal head, depending on how low the fetus is already positioned, or you can even have an IV injection. So we don't use a paracervical block in the U.S. if you have a viable pregnancy. And the reason that pain is so important here is because during the, the laboring mom, if you recall from our last talk about physiological changes, when the mom is in pain, they're going to be hyperventilating, unless you're just an amazing pain-tolerant mom, which I know a lot, a lot of people are, but for the most part, you're going to cause hyperventilation when the mom is in pain. This is going to dramatically increase the catecholamine release, which will reduce the uterine blood flow and decrease oxygen delivery to the fetus. So it's very important here that we're appropriately managing the laboring mom's pain because we don't want to decrease that oxygen to the fetus. And you don't want a mom that's all ticked off at you because your epidural didn't work correctly or you're not treating their pain correctly. So there's, there's lots of different factors here, but 
really the main thing is we don't want to decrease oxygen to the fetus. So stage two is going to be the next stage of labor where specifically here, this will be from complete dilation until fetal delivery. Here you will have the urge to bear down the pain going from the visceral pain in stage one is going to change more to a somatic pain here from the stretching and tearing of muscles and ligaments in the pelvic region. Just sounds lovely, by the way, the tearing and stretching of <laughs> muscles and ligaments in the pelvic region. I'm so sorry. Um, but this will be the somatic pain. So specifically, we want to treat this or we want to block this. This is going to be from spinal segments S2 to S4 and from the pudendal nerve. And so again, because of all of this stretching and tearing, you're going to have more of a sharp and localized pain. Treating this will be from neuroxyl anesthesia or pudendal nerve block. The risk here, again, similarly to the block in stage one that Cole was talking about, is you can have IV injection of the local anesthetic. It's a risk for all of the local anesthetics that we're going to do. So again, your technique is just going to be very important that you are aspirating, check your test dose, make sure that you're not in the IV. You can also have hematomas or worst case scenario, you could have fetal injection. And so again, it's just important that you follow your guidelines, keep appropriate technique, and just be aware of these complications that could arise. The third stage is the delivery of the baby until the delivery of the placenta. Here, like we talked about with these different medications previously, you're really worried about the hemorrhage at this point. And so again, if you remember previously in this discussion, we've talked about the tocolytic agents, which is where you're going to want to suppress the contraction of the uterus. Here, what we're going to want to use is the medications that are going to stimulate the contraction of the uterus and cause the clamping down or decreasing the bleeding there. This is where you'd want to give the oxytocin, the methergine, you can give the prostaglandins, and that's specifically, again, for the contraction of the uterus. Specifically for hemorrhage, that's where you can give the tranexamic acid, and that's going to basically prevent the breaking down of clots. Or again, like Cole mentioned, you can also give nitroglycerin here, which will be short acting and will relax the uterus and allow the surgeon to remove the placental fragments. Next, we want to move into the C-section and how this is going to work from an anesthetic standpoint. Typically, when we think of OB patients, from our standpoint, we think of doing an epidural or a spinal and we don't want to go into the actual process of doing that today. We'll probably do another talk where we discuss regional anesthesia with that. But just keep in mind here that there's different options that we can do when we go through either a laboring patient that's doing a vaginal delivery or doing a C-section. For the most of this next couple of minutes, we want to talk about C-sections. So it's important that you do a good pre-op. How was their pregnancy? What was their heart rate throughout pregnancy, blood pressure, any alterations in labs? Was their blood sugar okay throughout pregnancy? How long have they been in PO for? So this will change if we're doing an emergency section versus a scheduled C-section. If it's scheduled, you want the typical MPO, two hours for clear liquids, six hours for solids, eight hours for fatty meals. When you, you want to make sure in pre-op that you're discussing with them whether they want a spinal, whether they want a, a general anesthetic. Make sure you discuss the risk factors for each of the different types of anesthesia plans that you can do with them. And as we talked about before, you want to give Bicitra right before you start the procedure because it has that immediate effect and we don't want them to aspirate. 
At a minimum, you want an 18 gauge IV in case of hemorrhage. We're very, very concerned about hemorrhage in this type of picture, and we want to make sure that we have the appropriate access to the vascular system if we do have a hemorrhage picture where we can give the medications that we need to give. Antibiotics is another thing we want to do. There was some debate about doing this before the delivery of the fetus, after delivery of the fetus, just because the antibiotic will get into the fetal circulation. From what I'm seeing, you can give ANSEF two to three grams prior to delivery, and you want to do that before the delivery of the fetus. Specifically, when you want to talk about spinal anesthesia, like Cole mentioned, we're not going to go very in-depth in this discussion. We'll do another discussion where we talk more specifically about the spinal anesthesia but the basic ground rules that you want to remember for this is T4 is going to be the level that you want to use to cover the uterus. As far as your local anesthetics go, bupivacaine is going to be your most common. Generally, this is 8 to 15 milligrams, and the duration of this would last about one and a half to two hours. Lidocaine can sometimes present with some neurological symptoms, and so because of that, lidocaine is generally avoided here. You can give chloroprocaine 45 to 60 milligrams. It's really not used as much because its duration of action is so short because it is broken down from plasma clonesterase. What's nice about this medication is it doesn't cross over the placenta, so you won't have really any effects on the baby. But again, because it's broken down so quickly, it's not really used because you wouldn't really cover your whole case by using this spinal. You can use intrathecal opioids. You can use Duramorph 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams. Onset is 30 to 60 minutes, but it lasts for 12 to 36 hours. So this would be a nice adjunct to other things that you're using. Again, it has kind of a long onset, but the time that it will provide relief after is pretty long and can be a nice adjunct with some other therapies that you use. Your risk here, though, is that your respiratory depression can be for about 12 hours. And so if you have patients, especially with like sleep apnea or something like that, you are really concerned about giving this medication because, again, it has such respiratory depressant effects for such a long time after giving the medication, again, for up to 12 hours. You can also give fentanyl 10 to 25 mics. It has a short duration, but keep in mind, one of the unfortunate side effects here would be pruritus. And so just make sure that you're aware of the side effects and discuss all of those with the patient before you give these medications. So let's say now you've gotten the patient in the room, you place the spinal, what's the biggest side effect that we're going to see right after the spinal is placed? So that's going to be hypotension. As a result, we want to be checking the BP every one minute after the spinal has started until the patient is hemodynamically stable. The, the number one tail sign here of hypotension is going to be complaints of the mother for nausea or even vomiting is going to occur. That's going to be your number one quick indicator. We need to get the blood pressure back up. So if your blood pressure is cycling still and you haven't got a reading yet and they're complaining about being nauseous, you want to start something to increase their blood pressure. In order to prevent this from happening, we often give one liter bolus prior to putting the spinal in just to give that patient an extra volume in the tank to help alleviate some of the hypotension that will occur. But ultimately, we want to keep their BP within 80% of their baseline. Let's say they do drop, though, and they get hypotensive right after the spinal is placed. We need to have a vasopressure ready to go. Tanner already talked about the comparison between doing phenylephrine and ephedrine. From what I've been seeing, phenylephrine seems to be growing compared to ephedrine in terms of how often people are using it. The nice thing is you can titrate the phenylephrine to the heart rate. As Tanner was saying before, a lot of these laboring moms already have an elevated heart rate. So when we're doing phenylephrine, we can just drip it and kind of monitor their heart rate and get them to a good spot. 
So I've also seen some things about using Zofran in this case. Some things have showed that Zofran actually decreases the amount of hypotension that will occur, but also we ultimately know that it's going to decrease in the amount of nausea and vomiting that's going to be resulting from the hypotension. So it could just be that we're not seeing that nausea or vomiting picture from the hypotension, and that's why people are giving the Zofran as well. But keep that in mind, that's a drug that can be used here. And when we, when we position these patients after placing the spinal, we're going to lie them back in the supine position, but we're going to have that left uterine displacement because we don't want to cause that hypotension picture from compressing the aorta and the inferior vena cava from the uterus. Obviously, this doesn't matter once the baby is out. And so if you're doing an emergency section, the baby is going to be out within seconds to a minute here. And it's not going to matter once the fetus is out, we can have the patient supine. But until then, you want them with that left uterine displacement to limit the amount of hypotension that can occur. Perfect. So moving on, we have the patient position now. Let's think about airway. You don't necessarily need to have supplemental oxygen. It's probably a good idea just to have a nasal cannula on. But these patients won't necessarily be sleepy enough or the hopefully the medication mix that you've used with your spinal and then any adjuncts you're using isn't making the mom sleepy enough where you would need the supplemental oxygen. You should keep in mind that you need to have Pitocin ready for immediately after delivery. Again, this is because we're concerned about the possibility of hemorrhage at this point. Moving on to emergent C-section. So what we just discussed would be kind of the ideal way that we'd go about this. Now let's talk about emergent C-section. Many of the things will be very similar, but let's talk about the things that will change here. You're not really going to get a full history on these patients. Main thing you want to know, do they have any history of MH or any other complications that would be significant with anesthesia? That's going to, again, be very quick because this is going to be a very quick and kind of rushed procedure getting to the OB sweep and starting this procedure. You're going to want to do an RSI on these patients. So if you remember from our last discussion, we talked about these patients are at risk when you're intubating them. They have a very friable airway, risk for bleeding, risk for a poor view because of all the increased volume and engorgement of the vessels. And so it's difficult to intubate these patients many times. With the RSI, you're going to want to have someone hold cricoid pressure as always, pre-oxygenate as much as you can. You probably won't get your full three minutes here. So have them take, you know, four big tidal volume breaths, get as much oxygen there as you can, as much reserve. You're going to induce with propofol, sucks, SIVO. Volatile anesthetics, you need to remember, will cross and have implications for your uterus and also for the baby. And so it's important that you make sure you keep your MAC lower than you usually would Again, this will decrease your uterine contraction, and so you don't want to have too high of a MAC because you can have increased risk for the postpartum hemorrhage. You'll still want to give your antibiotics. Cole mentioned that you can give the NSF 2 to 3 grams, and then you want to make sure you keep their CO2 around 30 to 32. The CO2 here, like Cole was mentioning earlier with the hyperventilation, we can cause shifts in the oxyhemoglobin curve and can cause some vasoconstriction and also some decreased blood flow to the fetus. So it's really important that you manage your CO2 appropriately. And again, keep that around 30 to 32. One other thing we want to talk about here is tubal ligation. Oftentimes women have their tubes tied when they're still in the hospital after delivering their baby. So this will be done postpartum. 
it's not immediately after the procedure, but you know, within the next day or so. So we want to try to have them MPO for six to eight hours prior to the surgery. And we still are going to do an RSI here. Even though the baby has already been delivered, we're still at a risk of having aspiration. We're still going to do an RSI. It's okay for us to use propofol. It's a lower concentration in the breast milk than some of the other drugs that we give. So that's a good choice to use here for our anesthetic. We're still going to use our aspiration prophylaxis. This is all the same as if we were going in and the baby was still there and we were going to have a C-section. Again, we want to use low volatile anesthetics just simply because we're at increased risk of having, for one, post-op nausea and vomiting, and then two, that uterine relaxation that Tanner talked about. Even though we might be a day or two after delivering now, we still want to make sure the uterus is going to have that contraction and prevent hemorrhage that can occur. You can use labor neurectal anesthesia. So let's say they had an epidural placed the day before when they had a vaginal delivery, and now they're going to get their tubes tied the next day, and their catheter is still in for their epidural, we can still use that. We just want to make sure that we have at least a T4 block. We can use a spinal anesthetic if the epidural doesn't work. The nice thing here is we can use the chloroprocaine because it's short-acting. This procedure won't last as long. Whereas with that C-section, we wanted to make sure that it lasted throughout the entire time. Even though the delivery of the fetus is pretty fast, the rest of the procedure and, and closing the mom back up can take a while. And keep in mind, we're not going to have the aortic cable compression here. Once the fetus has been delivered, we're no longer at risk for that. So we can keep the patient supine. We don't have to have that left uterine tilt. And hopefully there's going to be less hypotension in these patients because we don't have as much blood flow going to the uterus now. So there's an autotransfusion that occurs to the rest of the body, which is very nice. But patient sensitivity to local anesthetics, depending on how fast we're doing this procedure after delivery, about a day later is when you start to see that sensitivity go down. So keep in mind that our dosage, if we're doing this later than 12 hours after delivery, it will go back to normal range. That pretty much wraps up what we wanted to talk about for this discussion. There's a lot more that we can discuss in the world of OB, but hopefully this gives us a good picture of how to make our plan going through C-sections, if we're going to be doing a tubal ligation a day after delivering their baby, the different medications that we're going to use, and how to manage complications that can occur 